Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available on the Apple and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. You probably haven't heard of Lizzie Maggie, yet she has done more to teach children about capitalism than anyone else. Born in 1866, she lived an unusual life for a woman from this era. She supported herself, and she did not marry until she was 44. In 1906, wanting to highlight gender inequality, she took out an advert offering herself for sale as a young woman American slave. Maggie was mocking marriage as the only option for women. Her advert said that she was not beautiful, but very attractive, and she had features full of character and strength, yet truly feminine. While the advert became the subject of news stories across the country, her biggest legacy was almost lost in history. In 1904, Maggie was granted a patent for a game she had designed, The Landlord's Game, which would become Monopoly. (laughs) Monopoly, a nice, ruthless, money-hungry family game. As generations of children have celebrated bankrupting their friends, it was exactly the opposite of this which Maggie set out to achieve. Let the children once see clearly the gross injustice of our present land system, she said, and when they grow up, if they are allowed to develop naturally, the evil will soon be remedied. To highlight the ills of capitalism, Maggie designed the landlord's game with two sets of rules. The anti-monopolist rules, where all were rewarded when wealth is created, and the monopolist rules, where the goal is to win by crushing your opponents. When a man named Charles Darrow got his hand on the landlord's game, he embedded cheating into its history. He created his own version of the game, stripping out the anti-monopolist rules and sold it to the Parker brothers. The game was relaunched as Monopoly, with a single objective, celebrate the triumph of one overall. And in true capitalist irony, Darrow made millions, while Maggie only received $500 for her patent and no royalties. Cheating is now part of the culture of Monopoly, so much so that Hasbro, who bought Parker Brothers in 1991, released the Cheaters edition of the game. We've had this data for years, claims Randy Klimbert, Hasbro's Senior Director of Design and Games Development. 50% of all Monopoly players cheat. Now, as someone who prides himself on his ability to rob the bank in Monopoly, even when I'm playing my kids, I have no interest in playing the Cheaters edition. The new rules give structure to cheating. Cheat cards and sneaky chance and community chess cards will tell you when and how to cheat, and all other cheating is off limits. Who would want to play a version of the game where cheating has rules? Why don't we play Monopoly? Which version? Let's stick to original Monopoly. The game is crazy enough as it is. The thing about cheating at Monopoly is that it's now largely considered fair game, if you can get away with it. And there are many websites and YouTube videos which will teach you how to cheat and how to spot a cheater. But the real joy in cheating is getting away with it under the noses of the people you are playing. Monopoly is life. Monopoly is ruthless. You play against your friends and you play until they're bankrupt. You take everything that they have left. And like Monopoly, we're all trying to accumulate wealth, avoid jail and win the odd beauty contest. And similar to Monopoly, people are cheating. Now, we're not stupid. We've all known for years that politicians and big business are getting away with cheating. We know they have their little backhanders, get the big jobs and trade with inside information. But since the 2008 financial crisis, they have been playing their own version of the Cheaters edition. 
They aren't slipping into the Monopoly bank and swiping £500 without you seeing. They are brazenly printing new notes, giving it to their friends and stealing your property. We all watched The Big Short. We all saw how those greedy bastards on Wall Street gambled away the future of billions of people. And we saw how the government, now an extension of Wall Street, did fuck all about it. And here we are, in another financial crisis, and they are doing it all again. The Bank of England has warned that the British economy is heading for an unprecedented recession. It says the economy is on course for the sharpest annual contraction for 300 years. We begin with that wild ride on Wall Street, the worst day in more than four years after the second worst on Friday. The Federal Reserve said it would step into the bond market to address highly unusual disruptions and offer at least $1.5 trillion worth of short-term loans to banks today and tomorrow. But will it all help? I don't think any of us expected to live through a pandemic. This was just something in the movies. Yet here we are on lockdown with the economy collapsing and millions of people losing their jobs. Yet somehow, despite the grim economic outlook, the US stock market has remained strong as governments have bailed out their Wall Street and big business buddies, while the hardworking people who built the economy are queuing at food banks. The cycle is the same every time. Privatised profits, socialised losses. You lose, they win, whether the economy goes up or down. And this time, one of the crooks of the 2008 financial crisis is helping write the rules. Steve Mnuchin, the foreclosure king, was one of the architects of the financial crisis, selling mortgage-backed securities for Goldman Sachs. Then after the economy crashed under the weight of the bullshit he was selling, he buys a bank and starts stealing the homes of the people he put out of work. The coronavirus is going to have a long and lasting impact on the economy and our futures. And the reaction by governments has exposed the cracks and corruption in the system. We're about to see what happens to a fragile economy built on cheap credit. And as it crumbles, who do you think Mnuchin will look after? There is a money game being played where government and big business always wins. And if you don't like it, then fuck you. Go to jail, don't pass go, and we're stealing your home too. From Bedford, UK, I am Peter McCormack, and this is Defiance. The ability to ignore how money works is one of the greatest privileges that some people have. And it's important to recognize that that's a privilege. You can ignore how money works when it works. When it stops working, it has a destructive effect that cascades through society. That was Andreas Antonopoulos. We'll hear more from him later. In this episode, I'm going to unpack how the money game is played by government and big business. To tell this story, I will at times have to simplify several complex topics, each of which would take hours to fully unpack. If you want to dig further into any of this, I have prepared extensive show notes covering the range of issues and people discussed in this episode. Now, for the last three years, I have been looking at the current financial system and the nature of money and how the game is rigged. For decades, we've been living beyond our means, as individuals, as businesses, and as governments. But each of us is playing with different rules. When we run out of money, we lose our homes. But when they run out of money, they just print more. And it is these rules which have led us from the 2008 housing bubble to the current crisis, an entire financial system built on cheap debt. So how did this all happen? The kind of ashes of of the financial crisis in 08, which 
began in, in 2007 with the subprime mortgage crisis, which was a sort of grew out of this environment in the United States of, of low interest rates and, and lax regulations and easy lending standards and massive securitization for the first time, these sort of mortgage-backed securities. And there was also just sort of broadly unchecked incentive structures across the financial industry at that time that led to this subprime mortgage crisis that then metastasized into this kind of global banking and liquidity crisis in the fall of 2008, punctuated by, by the uh, Lehman Brothers bankruptcy. All, all markets collapsed in the fall of 2008. And in, and in Q4, the Fed and the ECB and the, and the Bank of England, uh, along with, uh, with a few other central banks, purchased in aggregate $2.5 trillion of, of government debt and, and other troubled assets which was, again, not hyperbole, the largest monetary policy action in, in human history. And, and over that, that period of time, in the back part of 2008, the, the Fed and the Treasury, which, which didn't know what to do, they just kept trying new things and the stock market kept going down. So they just kept doing more things until the stock market stopped going down. And they introduced this term auction facility, and then they nationalized Fannie and Freddie, the, the mortgage companies, and then they bought AIG, the insurance company, and then they started insuring money market accounts, and then they introduced a $540 billion bailout of those money market accounts as they started failing, and then they introduced the $700 billion troubled asset relief plan, and then they introduced a $1.7 trillion commercial loan program, and then they bailed out the auto companies. And like all of that was made up on the fly. You know, we're, we're 11 years on now in, into that and everything that's going on in global macro, financial markets, monetary and fiscal policies are all just the sort of knock on effects of the response to the financial crisis in, in, in 2008. That was Travis Kling, Chief Investment Officer at Ikigai Asset Management. So, here we are in another financial crisis, and the economic impact is being felt globally. So it is time to take a look at the money game and see how big business and government is stealing your money. To do this, we're going to start by looking at what money is with Andrea Ferrero, an economics professor at the University of Oxford. Andrea has also worked as an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and is currently a consultant for the Bank of England. Money can, can be a store of value a way in which you know we we save our incomes and it's uh, and it's also a medium of exchange a way in which we buy goods as opposed to barter since the last century or so when we had started having big sovereign states money has become the monopoly of the states and that's why we have central banks to manage this monopoly and so today money is uh, is a liability of the central bank. It is the central banks who write the rules on the money game. They pull the levers that keep the economy running. They're supposed to act apolitically and under the purview of the legislators, but over the last two decades that has become less and less true. The favourite tool of the central bank is the money printer, something they have been using at an accelerating rate as they move from crisis to crisis. But the problem with the money printer is that it can lead to inflation. Inflation, that thing they talk about on the news, a target of the central bank. But let's call it for what it is. It's another tax by the government. 
Inflation measures the rate at which the price of goods and services increases over a period of time. Therefore, if prices are increasing, the relative purchasing power of your money is decreasing. In simple terms, inflation is making your money worth less. So not only are you paying income tax, inheritance tax, value-added tax and a complex myriad of other taxes, the government is so piss-poor at balancing their books, they print money to fill the gap, making the money in your pockets and bank accounts worth less. These high inflation rates are problematic for, for a variety of reasons, but primarily is that uh, inflation is like a tax. It destroys purchasing power. So if today I get my, my salary, which is 100, and tomorrow 100 buys a loaf of bread, but then the next day buys just half a loaf of bread, then my purchasing power uh, in two days has decreased by 50%. And that's a 50% increase in inflation. So that's why inflation is bad. Andrea tells us that central banks want to ensure that we have controlled inflation at about 2% a year, and this is to prevent deflation. Deflation, being the opposite of inflation, is when prices for goods and services decrease over a period of time. Often touted as dangerous for the economy, deflation can be regarded as a good thing if you have a lot of savings, because where inflation makes your money worth less, deflation makes your money worth more. Inflation erodes the value of money. Therefore, it punishes savers and rewards those taken on debt. And this is important because big business can accumulate vast amounts of debt, and it is the savers who pay the cost of this. Therefore, the economy is rewarding recklessness over prudence. Now, there was deflation after the 2008 crisis, but it was the Great Depression of the 1930s, which was one of the most deflationary periods. And it is the fear of deflation that causes central banks to keep a target of 2% inflation. Now, in a free market, the price of goods is determined by supply and demand. Low supply and high demand means high prices. And conversely, high supply and low demand equals low prices. As the economy contracts in this new crisis, we are seeing demand fall, as people are consuming less. But supply is also falling as workers have been laid off and factories closed because of the lockdown. When supply and demand fall, as we are seeing now, it is not uncommon to witness deflation and for economies to experience a recession. The statistical definition of, of a recession is that GDP, gross domestic product, falls for a certain number of subsequent quarters, typically uh, two consecutive quarters. The typical recession is a fall of GDP of about 2% per year. A depression is a, is a fall in GDP, which is much, much deeper. So we will be talking about something like 10%, probably. The Great Depression was a fall in GDP uh, in the US of about 30%. Okay, so if the lockdown is causing consumption to drop, which might lead to a recession, this is where central banks are meant to jump in. Rather than let the economy adjust, they will try to maintain growth by stimulating the economy. The other function that central banks around the world have is to intervene in situation of crisis, play the so-called lender of last resort, meaning that when the economy is in trouble, often when banks are in trouble, the central bank steps in and provides lending that banks and other private sector institutions would not be able to find. The central banks have interest on that lending, and this is called the interest rate. The lower the interest rate, the cheaper it is for you to get a mortgage and for businesses and banks to borrow money. 
Interest rates are set low when the economy needs stimulating. If the cost of borrowing is down, households and corporations are going to borrow more, spend more, and the economy should get back on track. But if people aren't working, and if the economy is in a recession, even interest rates at almost 0% might not be enough to stimulate the economy. And this is where quantitative easing comes in. The money printer. Central banks buy government bonds, which means they print more money to inject into the economy. And the government can issue new bonds as and when required. Last week, the Bank of England has announced it would extend its facility to buy directly from the government any new bond issuances that that the government would make to finance its needs. While quantitative easing may stimulate the economy, the flow of this new money drives deeper wealth inequality and it is a key component of how government and big business cheats us. We're 11 years into this thing now. Quantitative easing is driving everything. All asset prices around the world move in conjunction with one another based on these uh, these central bank actions. And and quantitative easing is is driven what's what's called the Cantillion effect. It's like an Austrian economics term, but it it just refers to the, the change in the relative prices resulting from the change in, in money supply and, and where the specific injection points of that new money are in the economy. And when we look at the sort of differences between modern monetary theory, MMT, and that versus just juicing QE while running trillion dollar annual budget deficits, like the only difference between those two things is like where, where does the money show up? and QE while running trillion dollar budget deficits, that money really shows up in the hands of the wealthy by definition. And, and so we've had a decade of that. And that's what's given rise to the populism that we see today. It's, it's actually a really natural response to the kind of wealth inequality that's fundamental to the way that quantitative easing puts money into the economy. Now, you will hear politicians blame the current financial crisis on the pandemic. Politicians like to blame. Yeah, right now, we close down a, the largest economy, the greatest economy in the history of the world. It's the most uh, successful economy. When you look at the stock market, we're breaking records virtually every week, sometimes every day. And the uh, stock market's still not doing badly, considering what this country has been through, which really tells you how strong it was in the first place. But that's simply not true. Existing deep and long-brewing underlying problems were simply brought to a head by the coronavirus. Many investors, economists and market analysts have been sounding the alarm bells about this deteriorating situation for years. Those alarm bells grew louder in the year leading up to the pandemic, and now those alarm bells are being proven correct in real time. Travis sounded this alarm to me when I interviewed him in early February, before coronavirus had pushed large parts of the world into a lockdown. The whole world is cutting interest rates and juicing quantitative easing. I mean, just in 2019, Denmark cut interest rates, the Eurozone cut interest rates, Sweden cut interest rates, Australia cut, New Zealand cut, Thailand cut, South Korea cut, we cut, Chile cut, Hong Kong cut, Peru cut, Saudi Arabia cut, Malaysia cut, the Philippines cut, China cut, Indonesia cut, Brazil cut, India cut. Uh, Mexico cut, Turkey cut, South Africa cut. And they, they, they cut for good reason. There's a very clear correlation between central banks cutting and 
the global manufacturing PMI picking back up. Global manufacturing PI is PMI is a really good proxy for global GDP growth. And so like these things work, but the the part that is important to realize is that you're starting this this easing cycle from from such a further down point than we ever have before in the history of central banking. <laughs> and again, not hyperbole. We've never been in a spot before where you're starting an easing cycle with $13 trillion of negative yielding sovereign debt. Like when we started easing in 2007, there was no dollars of negative yielding sovereign debt in the world. And, and interest rates were 5%, 6%, 8%, you know, depending on where, you know, where, where you looked in the world. And so, so, so there's just way less ammo left from a monetary policy side to be able to go and do things to support global growth, which is, which is why you're seeing this pickup in, in, in fiscal policy type of stuff. The strategy of printing money has consequences. I spoke with finance expert Caitlin Long about how governments have been racking up more and more debt. And like all debts, they will have to be paid back at some point. Else the borough will be pushed into bankruptcy. The virus was the pin that pricked the credit bubble that has been building up for more than five decades. In the U.S. specifically, there has been more debt borrowed by borrowers than savings created by savers since 1968. So in other words, we've been mortgaging our future to be able to consume more than we produced. Okay, so we need to do a little history lesson here. Let's go back to 1944. With the majority of nation-states broke and in turmoil following the Second World War, the Bretton Woods Conference was held to try and regulate global finance. At the conference, it was agreed that currencies would be pegged to the US dollar and the US dollar would be pegged to gold, redeemable at $35 per ounce. And therefore, the US dollar became the de facto global currency. The gold standard, as this was known, lasted until 1971, when President Nixon announced that the United States would no longer convert dollars to gold at a fixed value. With the spiralling cost of the Vietnam War forcing the US to print more dollars, France and then other countries demanded their gold back, and billions of dollars worth of gold left America. A lot of people said the moment that we went off the gold standard, the economy would collapse. And the reason it didn't is because there was a lot of equity built up. There were, in other words, a lot of assets that had not yet been encumbered by debt. I'm thinking about the basic balance sheet equation where your equity is your assets minus your debt. We had no net debt on the U.S. economy prior to 1968. And by the way, when I say no net debt, it wasn't that there was no debt. I want to make it clear that there, the debt it's in of itself is not bad. Debt that is created out of thin air is what's bad. In other words, uh, it, to the extent that savers are willing to make their savings available to borrowers, that debt is backed by something real. And so, um, like I said, in, up until 1968 in the U.S., there had been no net debt on the U.S. economy's balance sheet because all the debt was backed by previous savings. It wasn't until 1968 that we started borrowing more than we had previously saved, which essentially means that we're just drawing down our equity as a country. And eventually, when we draw all that equity down, there is no unencumbered asset value. The Western world made a decision back in the 1960s 
that we were going to go down that direction. Some would argue they made the decision when the UK went off the, the gold standard after World War One, but at least we had some tether after World War One and Two to prevent the proliferation of debt. Again, the gold standard, there's nothing special about gold in the sense that it was designed to just keep a tether on how much debt was allowed to be created out of thin air in the economy, essentially how much we were allowed to borrow from future generations. And uh, the baby boom generation has been able to consume a lot more than it produced. The end of the gold standard was the start of central banking as we know today, the cheaters edition, where the government made the rules to suit their agenda, rules that only they could play. When you borrow money from the bank for a mortgage, your house is equity. It makes sense that the bank wouldn't give you money if you didn't have a house to secure it against or a job to ensure you could pay back the loan. But during these times of crisis, the government is lending money to big business regardless of their equity or their ability to generate cash flow. What we are seeing now is companies borrowing and leveraging themselves because interest rates are so low and the government is allowing it because they want to see the stock market continue to rise. Why? Well, a healthy stock market is good for a president, especially in an election year. We don't know what the real interest rates would be if we actually didn't have central banks that were setting interest rates artificially at levels that keep stock markets propped up. In reality, a business should be taking into effect the chance that a known foreseeable 100-year flood, for example, is going to happen in their business. That should absolutely be part of their risk management strategy. So, back to you. If you default on your mortgage, then the bank will take your house away. Well, in Mnuchin's case, he'll take your house away even if you don't default, because he likes to fly on private jets. But we'll talk more about that arsehole later. Now, when you can't pay your mortgage, you can't just say, sorry, I've spent all the money on the stock market, can I borrow some more? The relationship you have with the bank creates responsibility. You know you can't not pay your mortgage, so you have to balance your personal books, which may mean cutting your spending or even getting a second job. So why is the government allowing big business to play by such drastically different rules? Failure is an absolute prerequisite of capitalism. Many businesses fail, and I think uh, something like 80 to 90 percent of startups fail. It's normal. What's not normal is bailouts, and large publicly traded businesses have been deemed too important to fail, too big to fail, and therefore we're seeing a lot of bailouts of especially the large publicly traded companies to try to keep the stock market propped up. The problem with having interest rates set artificially low is that it creates a perverse incentive for the management team, and that perverse incentive is that the management team guts the capital base in the company, levers up at artificially low interest rates, and repurchases their shares. There's a big populist outcry against these companies that bought back their stock on borrowed money, and now they're running to the government for bailouts. And the honest truth is, the management team was responding to the system incentives that were created. They had an incentive to keep as little capital in the company as possible and not to pay attention to the foreseeable 100-year flood risks because they knew the governments would bail them out and because they knew capital wasn't priced properly. If there were no government bailouts and if we had a true free market and interest rates were set by a true free market, you would see businesses doing this sort of 
hundred year flood planning and keeping fault tolerance in their system so that they could survive. Because if they didn't, then they would go through bankruptcies and restructurings. The root cause of it is that we don't know what the real price of money is. We've switched over from an equity financed economy to what is truly a debt financed economy. Okay, so let's just recap here. Big business leverages up, they borrow cheap money on low interest rates from the banks, they then use this cheap money to buy back their own stock whilst keeping no equity on the balance sheet. Buying the stock with borrowed money from the government keeps their stock prices high whilst leaving the businesses with more cash to, well, you guessed it, buy back more stock. When the shit finally hits the fan, they get bailed out by the government who lends them more cheap money to keep stock prices high. Let's take these rules to the Monopoly board. Can you imagine one player getting bailed out by the bank every time they ran out of money? Eventually they would win and you would lose. This is the money game and it is rigged against you. We use the word cartel to describe drug cartels and oil cartels, and we almost never hear the word cartel in association with banking. So the words banking and cartel are not said together. And that in itself should tell you something. If you want to know who has power over you, a cartel in a practical sense is a collection of entities that have sufficient market power to prevent competition, to twist the rules to their advantage, to price fix and collude, and therefore to act in parasitic ways that extract rent from the economy while adding little value. We understand that intuitively when we talk about drug cartels, when we talk about oil cartels. And yet the banking cartel fits all of that criteria but we never talk about the banking cartel. You shouldn't spend your money on avocado toast. You should have an emergency fund. You should have a second skill, a second job. You should be able to weather this crisis. And if you don't, that's a failure of moral character because you will not prepared. But we don't apply that standard to multinationals that after the longest expansion in wealth that has lasted more than a decade, find themselves unable to survive after two weeks of crisis. Where's their emergency fund? Maybe they should get a second job, develop a skill, stop eating so much avocado toast. And we apply a completely different standard to them. And when these cheap credit bubbles burst, who pays? It is the hard workers who do the real work building the economy. These people are robbing us blind. And the government isn't just letting it happen. They are orchestrating the whole thing. A kleptocracy is a Greek word that describes a system of governance of the state where thieves are in charge. That's what kleptocracy means quite literally. It means managed by thieves or governed by thieves. Steve Mnuchin is the embodiment of kleptocracy, is the most obvious caricature of a crook given the keys to the treasury so that they can magnify their criminal activity. So let's look at the type of person who gets to play the money game, the cheaters edition. Remember when I mentioned this guy, Steve Mnuchin, the US Treasury Secretary? 
let's take a look at his credentials. Let's go back to the 2008 bubble when Mnuchin was head of mortgage lending at Goldman Sachs, selling the subprime mortgage products that caused the 2008 financial crisis. Goldman Sachs themselves declared that they would pay over $5 billion to settle claims it misled mortgage bond investors during the financial crisis. So what did Mnuchin do after the crash? Along with his buddies, they bought a bank and built a foreclosure machine, stealing the homes of the very people they put out of work. And six years later, they sold that bank for $1.5 billion in profit. On the evening of December 3rd, 2009, <clears throat> I received a knock on my door from a man that introduced himself. Apologize. As a new owner of my property. And in March of 2010, I received a final notice telling me that I had five days to leave my condo, pack up 10 years of my life, and be out. I do apologize. <clears throat> Steve Mnuchin profited from people like me, even when we did everything we could to keep our homes. Now, you might be asking why isn't he in jail? Well, the California Attorney General's office asked the then California Attorney General, now Senator Kamala Harris, to prosecute him and his bank for their illegal foreclosure practices. But without explanation, Harris declined to do so. She did, however, receive a campaign donation from Mnuchin during a 2016 Senate race, the only Democrat to receive a donation from Mnuchin. And now Mnuchin is the US Treasury Secretary... Yes, the guy who stole from the poor to give to the rich, he is now the principal economic advisor to President Trump. Elizabeth Warren raised concerns when addressing the Senate on Mnuchin's appointment. Did it make a difference? Did it fuck? Donald Trump nominated Steve Mnuchin to serve as his Secretary of Treasury. Mr. Mnuchin spent 17 years at Goldman Sachs, much of it in the division that created and peddled the kinds of mortgage-backed securities that would later blow up the financial system. Mr. Mnuchin is the ultimate Wall Street insider. From the moment he graduated from college until today, he has worked at a big bank or a hedge fund. If Wall Street threatens to blow up the economy again, does anyone seriously expect Mr. Mnuchin to get tough with his old buddies and tell him to knock it off? In fact, you can expect just the opposite. Mr. Mnuchin pretty much laps the field when it comes to personal experience in tilting the playing field in favor of financial interests and against working families. Hopefully, you are now seeing how the money game is played. The problem for most people is that people who are not sociopaths cannot conceive of behavior that is entirely indifferent and lacks the ability to even feel empathy for the suffering of others. That behavior is by definition alien because the human psyche when working correctly cannot behave in a way that ignores the suffering the priority wasn't to address the pandemic the priority was to exploit the pandemic to enrich self and friends with not a single concern given 
And for most people, that's inconceivable. And at every step, they have found a way to direct the response to the crisis into enriching themselves, no matter how many bodies pile up around them. Andreas isn't the only one who thinks like this. Ben Hunt of Epsilon Theory also thinks we have given the keys of the Treasury and the central banks to a small handful of billionaire Wall Street bankers who know how to keep the system working in favour of big business. That narrative we have that we're all in this together and that the rulers have at heart the best interests of the ruled, I think they can't help themselves. The the, the members of the, the US Senate who are particularly egregious right, in their in their trading on, on information, they come from a world of wealth. They come from this world and and they, they really cannot help themselves. It is what is required to be successful in this world, in that world. And so whether you place them in a different environment or not, they honestly, they, they, they don't see what the problem is. It, it, we, we are truly, I think, led by high-functioning sociopaths. And I, and, and I mean that in the technical sense of the word. I, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. But these are people who have no empathy for others, who have the ability to compartmentalize and to put on a mask and to, 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 to lie and for them, it's not really a lie, it, it, because it, it's <laughs> it, there is no ability to reflect and say, oh, was that wrong? It is a system of wealth and influence. It's not, in fact, is rarely administered with the, the, the jackboot and the, and, and the billy club, right? It's, it's not the 1984 version of the state. Instead, it's it's the smiley, happy-faced version. It's the nudge, right? It's, it's the story, it's the narrative. Uh, it's that, that skin, that wrapper that's placed around those naked sinews of power. What we've seen in both this crisis and the last crisis is that the, the powers that be, what I like to call the, the, the naked sinews of power, are revealed. Right, the pleasant skin that we have in normal times, that pleasant skin of democracy, that pleasant skin of capitalism, uh, that pleasant skin of, again, liberty and justice for all. When crisis comes, when the interest of the powerful are threatened, that skin is ripped off and, and you can see those naked sinews of power at, at work. We absolutely saw this in 2008, the great financial crisis. We're absolutely seeing it again. 2008 should have been a wake-up call for building an economy with stronger foundations, not inspiration for further reckless monetary and fiscal policy. The subprime mortgages that the likes of Mnuchin helped orchestrate saw huge levels of unsustainable borrowing, where people were lent way more than they could ever pay back. While people lost their homes, big business wasn't allowed to fail, and bailouts and cheap loans led to a decade of rampant stock market growth. Nothing got fixed in 2008. We put a band-aid, we swept it under the rug, and the problem got worse and it got bigger because the solution to 2008, which was a massive wealth transfer, 
and an abandonment of the middle class dream set us up for much worse outcomes this time around. And lots of us were warning about this outcome, yet here we are. For many people, the 2008 crisis never ended. We never recovered. An entire generation, a generation that just came out of college and was looking for its first job, a generation that was at the age to start a family, have kids, maybe secure a home, had to postpone all of that for a decade. It was a lost decade for an entire generation, and that generation never recovered. Not only did nothing get fixed in 2008, but the increase in inequality caused by that recession has now been amplified even more by this one. There will be no recovery. Nothing got fixed. Borrowing continued at unprecedented levels, creating a larger bubble, leading us into a new financial crisis. So, how does this all end? Debt plus deflation equals bankruptcy. If you're if you've got lots of debts, and deflation means essentially that the real value of those debts keep going up, and probably your cash flows are going down, then you can't pay your debts, so you go bankrupt. This is Rao Pal. He is an investor and the founder and CEO of Real Vision Group, a finance media company looking at global macro issues. Companies and economies don't generate enough cash flow to service debts. So it's still that long-term debt issue that we've been carrying for so long. It feels like this may well be a phase that we're going to go to where we start to see that unravel over time. There is no no prior evidence in history where we have been able to have an unlimited amount of debt. No, no previous example that shows that it actually works. And in fact, many previous examples proving that it doesn't work at all. And all you're doing is accelerating the demise of your currency and switching into something new. In the 1920s, deflation and a depressed economy saw the stock market tumble and the US dollar lost 40% of its value. Meanwhile, across the Atlantic, when Germany decoupled from the gold standard, it went on a huge borrowing spree to pay for the war it was fighting. This, combined with a recession and political turmoil, led to hyperinflation and the start of the biggest war the world has ever seen, and ultimately, a new world order. Is that world order coming to an end? Western liberal democratic order has been in decline for a while. Now, I'm not sure that the infrastructure that we have that worked since World War II is as applicable now. I love Adam Ferguson's book, When Money Dies. He's, an, he's a historian uh, who wrote it in the 50s or 60s. So it's, it's not colored by, this, by the political debates of today. And, and nor is he an economist, he's a historian, but he explains how volatile things get towards the end. And so when we're seeing 5% intraday swings in capital markets, that's nothing. Um, when you have a hyperinflation, and, and, and again, the historian, uh, he's talking about the hyperinflation in Germany and that in, in Austria between World War I and World War II, 
you would see typically it started out with, you know, 2% daily swings in, in, in stock markets and the value of the currency against gold. And then it went up to 5% daily swings and then 10% daily swings. And then towards the end, there were 50% intraday swings of the currency and the stock market value. And I think, you know, to us seeing these 5% daily swings that we're witnessing in, in stock markets right now, a lot of people say, oh my gosh, that's terrible volatility. No, it's not. If you understand history, uh, this is actually pretty tame compared to what could be coming. I think we ain't seen nothing yet, so to speak. Yeah, I think the closest example was the 1930s. I think 1929 was the liquidity event, the crash. Then there was the hope event. Will the economy recover? Is everything okay? Was it just a financial event? And then the reality stepped in and it became a solvency event, which is a, a similar to pattern I think will happen now. So the 1930s, don't forget, was all of that. It was a financial crisis. It then morphed into a solvency crisis and then a currency crisis as well. As every currency left the gold standard, eventually the dollar got too strong and had to leave the gold standard too and reset 40% lower down. The 2008 crisis screwed an entire generation, and now we're on the brink of creating worse problems for another generation. They too may struggle to find work and get on the housing ladder. My analysis suggests that in 12 months' time, we're likely to be going down the slope of despair as people realise that the global economy is not rebounding in the way that they hoped, and that corporate and personal cash flows are still reduced, but their debts aren't. And if that's the case, it becomes a crimping of consumption, a firing of more people, or a not rehiring of people who've been furloughed, for example. So it's the slow cutting process of the economy that I think once the markets realise that, I think it plays out in the way of falling equity markets. I think it plays out with more central bank intervention more fiscal stimulus, particularly after the US election, where we may see some huge stimulus coming through, and I think around the world. I think there may be some huge changes to come from Europe as they grapple with, what do they do here? Do they unite under a euro bond and mutualise all sovereign debts, which is the joint fiscal strategy, or do they get forced by the markets to abandon it altogether? Do Japan go to a debt jubilee? Or do they keep edging to that way? All of these questions are probably going to start to get answered in the next 12 months. So my my view is the probability is that this is a longer, deeper, more grinding, brutal downturn than most people are expecting. Plan for the worst, hope for the best. People are currently talking about whether this will be a V-shaped recovery or a U-shaped recovery. And mostly they're talking about the stock market chart. But if you look at employment as a metric, for example, or purchasing power of the average family, it took almost 10 years for the average family to claw its way back to where it was just before the 2008 crisis, and then this one hit. 
this will be an L-shaped recovery, which isn't a recovery. It basically means that we leave behind another generation. And that's going to have tremendous consequences for society in any country that has chosen this path. And it's not just the U.S. Same thing is happening in the U.K. and other places. It's going to result in a level of inequality that is going to create violence, a surge in crime, and is going to force those who have the means to retreat behind high walls and raise a wire and get shuttled from home to work to school in armored cars. You can see examples of that kind of society all around the world. If you visit South Africa, if you visit Chile or Argentina, if you visit Brazil, uh, if you visit parts of Mexico, you see that kind of society where you can no longer afford safety if you're part of the middle class. The Money Game Cheaters edition is played by people who do not care about the consequences for normal people. They will steal from you any way they can. They will take your homes and your jobs. They will tax you while their accountants use clever loopholes to avoid tax. And if all else fails, they will print money, destroying the value of yours. This Western democratic order that we have known since the 1950s may be coming to an end. The financial systems led by central banks and controlled by big business is starting to crumple. With a recession looking likely, what can you do to be prepared? I like the notion of making sure that you own assets that are nobody else's IOU. And I'm not suggesting that you put 100% of your assets there, but I'm suggesting that you really stop and think about your whole balance sheet, your, all of your savings. What are you holding your savings in? If it's cash in a bank, that's an IOU. If it's securities, believe it or not, that's an IOU, securities in your brokerage account. Unless you own the actual stock certificate, the piece of paper, you don't own the shares. They're an IOU from, from your broker dealer to you. So you start thinking about things like real estate and jewelry and, of course, gold and Bitcoin and other collectibles for your longer term savings. Um, those types of assets are nobody else's IOU. And uh, those are the things I think that long-term will end up doing better. I'm not making any investment recommendations and I have no idea in the short-term where they're going, but I like those as an asset class because I'm not worried about whether a counterparty is going to default on me. Um, just one warning uh, on all of those assets. If you buy the financial version of them, if you're buying a gold ETF or you're buying a Bitcoin that you're going to store in a custodian, that is an IOU. You need to be really surgical about how you own these assets and make sure that you own a, some percentage of your net worth in assets that nobody else owes to you so that in the event there are a lot of defaults someday, that you know that you're going to come out ahead. Don't let go of your cash too quickly. He who has cash in a recession is king. Spend a little less. Just don't be as frivolous. It's okay to not consume all the time. Okay, well, how do I invest? What do I do with my investments? Well, it's tricky because we don't know how this plays out. I could be wrong. But I do think that the outcomes are potentially bad enough that it should 
drive the price of gold and Bitcoin higher, for example. So I think there is an opportunity set within that. And I think the great opportunity set for everybody is themselves. We can all earn a living if we can figure it, a way of hustling for it. Being an entrepreneur on a small scale or a larger scale is truly the best use of your own capital. And your own capital is your time. It's the only thing you don't have more of. So make the best use of it. And people don't understand income. They always want to get rich quick. But actually get rich slowly by earning an income is the best single thing you can do for yourself. Hoping that your Bitcoins go up 100x and will make you rich in the end is actually not the answer. That's a nice optionality to add on top of income. But find different sources of income that are robust. People have learned that one source of income, i.e. going to a nine-to-five job, is not robust because suddenly it can stop, as what's happened for you know, millions of people around the world right now. But if you could find diverse streams of income, and that's why things like driving Ubers, again, in this environment, not so straightforward, but I'm just giving it as an example, it allowed people to layer on different levels of income. And then once you layer on different levels of income, you're, you're, able, you're able to save a bit more or invest a bit more, and now you're on the front foot and not on the back foot. And if you're lucky and you can create a business, well, a business is, particularly in this online world, has a very low cost and a very high margin. So I mean, that's a phenomenal opportunity. The financial markets are being propped up by government borrowing, corporate bailouts and the printing of yet more and more money. The economy is being judged on the strength of its stock market, not the strength of its people. We're seeing volatility in the financial markets. The cracks are showing and it is harming the hard-working people who make the stuff which this economy is built on. The rules of the money game cheaters edition are very simple. Privatised profits, socialised losses. Now is the time to make a difference. Not next year, not next week, but now. Start understanding the game because we are all being cheated. The interesting thing about modern monetary theory, which essentially says there is no cap on the amount of debt you can borrow, is that it works until suddenly it catastrophically fails. This show was produced by Tom Pattinson with sound engineering by Danny Knowles. Additional thanks to Travis Kling on production, as well as guests Andrea Ferrero, Andreas Antonopoulos, Rao Powell, Caitlin Long and Ben Hunt. Our website is defiance.news where you can download previous shows and watch our films. Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, the best and safest exchange for buying Bitcoin. Available at kraken.com or you can download the app from the Apple or Google app stores. I am Peter McCormack. Thanks for listening. You can check out my other show, What Bitcoin Did at whatbitcoindid.com. I'll be back next week with another episode of Defiance.